This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 187, and today I sat down with Paul Beck, the founder and CEO of Matter of Fact. Matter of Fact is a skincare brand thoughtfully formulated by Paul himself with research-backed products and straightforward clinical test results. I think you're going to love this episode. Paul has a wild story from growing up in Florida as a talented artist to becoming a K-pop star living in South Korea, to earning his MBA at Wharton, to meeting a friend that inspired him to learn cosmetic formulation. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I am really excited to hear your story in building Matter of Fact. I've heard so many amazing things about your inspiring story. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a privilege. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for Anthony for introducing us. And I'm so excited. So let's hear from the very beginning. I know we're both in LA right now, but where did you grow up? You're from Florida. Where where in Florida did you grow up? So I was actually born in Shreveport, Louisiana, right outside of Shreveport, and I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, right in the Panhandle. Wow. And what was that like? What was it like growing up there? Oh, gosh. I mean, it was a relatively small community and lots of great people and great families, but it was... I was one of very few people of Asian ancestry at school and in my classes. And and of course, my parents came to the U.S. before I was born. My mom came to pursue a PhD in chemistry. My father quickly followed. Wait, 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 what do you mean followed? Like he also got his PhD in chemistry? Oh, no, no, no. He married at that time and had my older sister. And so they just didn't want to be on separate continents. And so he sort of quit his job, brought my sister on over, and they were reunited in Lubbock, Texas, where my mom was at Texas A&M getting her PhD in chemistry. And actually, this is something that I always think is so wonderful about my father, but he started by scrubbing pots in the cafeteria of the university she was studying at and worked odd jobs, pinching and saving enough until eventually he could open up a small stall at the local flea market and then save more until he could open up a small beauty supply store. And so, you know, it's something that I'm very proud of, the hard work and sacrifices that my parents made in order to provide for their family. And of course, that's not something unique to me. That's true of so many parents and especially immigrant parents, but it's something that I'm very grateful for. It's amazing. I had Vanessa from Amsam also on the show, and she talked about her parents as refugees. And it's incredible. And even the founder Proven, we spoke about that earlier offline. It's really incredible. It's so inspiring to see these founders come on the show who have these immigrant parents and how inspiring that was for them and how it really helped kind of pave the path, I think, for you guys in a, in a way to show you what's possible. It was. I mean, of course, you know, I'd be lying if I said there weren't challenges, right? There wasn't a lot of extra anything, you know, money or emotion, right? That's just really the reality for so many immigrant families. But it was a wonderful example in many ways of discipline and restraint. They didn't go on to take over the world by any stretch of the imagination. But that frankly didn't quite matter to me, just the fact that they were working through some challenging situations. And I think they did it, though, too, because they wanted you to be able to take over the world, right? The parents knew that if they could come here and give their children a chance. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was a big part of it. And, And also, you know, my mother was the oldest of 
five kids. And it was at a time when South Korea was a very poor country, not the sparkling land of film and television and music that it is and technology that it is today. But even at that time, her family was especially under challenging economic circumstances. And she supported her parents and her younger siblings from the age of 12. And so I think for her, another big part of it was seeing the U.S. as a real place of opportunity for her, that she wouldn't have limits placed on her because of any aspect of her identity, you know, including her gender, and that she'd be able to pursue an education and a career that she was excited about and proud of. And so I know that they're very they're very grateful to be here in the U.S. and to have had the opportunities that they've had as a result of that. And so is it you said you have an older sister? Was it just you two kind of growing up together in Florida? That's right. You know, I love my family so much. And my sister's six years older than me. So there was quite an age gap. And as a result of that, I spent a lot of time finding ways to entertain myself. My parents were busy trying to make ends meet. I'm sure my older sister didn't want to spend time with her kid brother. It's <laughs> a age gap, especially. And so I was constantly finding ways to entertain myself. I loved making things from a really young age. So I always was drawing and making things with my hands. I loved making things that would bring other people joy. My parents, of course, you know, we were we were a frugal family. And so they had a big stack of A4 paper that had misprints on them. And so instead of throwing it out, they said, well, you can draw on the other side of this piece of paper because at least one side is blank. But it was really my first love was was drawing. And I sometimes say that it's the only thing that I was naturally good at as well. And I wanted to be an artist actually, but of course that scared the living daylights out of my parents who were living this hard immigrant life. They're like artists. Wait a minute. That's a, that's a hobby. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh no. So at what point were you, or I guess how strong did this kind of passion for being an artist get to until maybe your parents said, no, 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 that's not an option. Or did you fight that at all? Or, you know, how did that go? Oh my goodness. I mean, I remember I was, I think seven years old and some of my team members, when they hear the story, asked to see this drawing, but my parents really believed in the power of education. So while we didn't have a lot, they always wanted to make sure that we had books. And so we'd go to the local bookstore, to the sales section. There's always a plethora of books that were on sale, especially coffee table books. And a lot of them were art history books. And so I finagled my way into getting them to buy me these art history books on sale for $10 each. And in one of them, there's a big picture of the Mona Lisa. And so one summer when I was seven years old, I drew it with paper and pencil. So black and white sort of version of the Mona Lisa. And it was very, very similar to, uh, of course, the original. And I, I remember because of that, you know, I entered a local art competition and my parents were very worried, you know, art should just be a hobby. You shouldn't be spending so much time on this. But there was a small cash prize <laughs> for, for this little art fair. And I think that's, and I... I got, I think, first place in that first competition. And then thereafter, they were sort of like, oh, well, maybe this this is a, a nice little hobby for you. <laughs> They're like, all right, fine. You can keep drawing, but don't get too serious. But, you know, keep it going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I really said that I want to be an artist all the way through early middle school. Um, at that time, things got really tough at home. And I think for me, it wasn't something explicit that they said, but for me, it was, okay, it's time to grow up. And so I continued doing art, but I did think everyone in the family should grow up to pull their own weight, myself included. And so let me think about ways in which I can develop myself where I, I will have sort of a career. But there was always a tension because my interests always lied in making things, whether it was art or music, and of course now skincare products. But I for a very long time, didn't think that it was possible to have a sustainable career and to spend time making things every day professionally. And so I do feel very, very lucky now that I'm able to do that every day. And what do you mean it got really difficult at home? Is that just because of the art that you were pursuing or? Oh, no, it was, you know, outside circumstances, the economy in South Korea, well, in, in fact, several countries in East Asia at the time experienced a lot of challenges. And so although we never had very much, we were always, my parents were always 
making sure that they could help their family in Korea as well. And at that time, things really tanked, economically speaking, and it just caused a lot of heartache and a lot of challenges. And I just saw the the toll that it took on my parents and the responsibility that they felt to make more and spend less and pinch more here and there so that they could help support the family that we had in South Korea. And I think looking back on it, they probably were clinically depressed at the time as a result of just, you know, spending so many years running on empty and then being dealt this new set of challenges. And so I remember feeling, you know, at that age, 11 years old, thinking, okay, I'm not a kid anymore. And I can see the difficulty that they're facing and the toll that it's taking and thinking, I need to, I need to play my part as well. Oh man. I mean, were you ever like, maybe I can just find some more competitions and make some cash, you know, for the art? (laughs) Well, the cash prizes did get bigger as you got old. Older. I mean, the cash prizes were, I think when I was in the first year, it was something like $25 for first place. And by the time I was 11 years old, it's probably something like, depending on the competition, $50 to $100 for first place or best in show, depending on the size of the competition. But it it wasn't, I don't know, I guess I, I did end up internalizing that message of, this brings me joy now, but is it going to be able to sustain me and help me play my part in this family long term? And time I thought probably not. And so the universe works in mysterious ways. And and so nowadays I do wake up every day and feel like, wow, I can't believe that I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe what you're saying is that part of the drawing and the art is really part of creation and like you say, building something, but really creating something. And so now you're able to do that with just a different medium, basically. Yeah, you know, making a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful piece of music is in some ways not so different from being in the lab, creating skincare products, you know, batching them, imagining the joy it's going to bring someone that uses it, hopefully, of course, and there are many prototypes that don't bring very much joy. And so they get scrapped, but that the joy of making things with my hands is something that is something that has helped me. And I think as a child, it's probably also a self-soothing mechanism, you know, way to deal with sometimes stressful environment. Right. Makes sense. And so when you're 11 years old, you're kind of in this household that was seemed probably depressed at that time. And you realized, okay, art is fun, but maybe I need to do something else that can help support the family. What did you decide on? What did you do from there? (laughs) Much of the chagrin of my older sister, who I know loves me so much, and that's why she was afraid of me becoming a an uber nerd, but it wasn't something that I was particularly afraid of. Why was she afraid of you being a nerd? I think nerds make a lot of money, don't they? (laughs) We grew up in a town where we looked different from our peers. You know, we were the only Asian students, usually sometimes the only non-white students in our classes. And, and so this idea of probably wanting to protect me by trying to fit in, try to not stand out in ways that would make you seem strange or unpalatable. So I think it really came from a place of love, but I was lucky enough in that environment to have really great teachers who believed in my ability to learn. And so I joined the math club and <laughs> the trivia club and you know places where my teachers encouraged me and that I seemed to have at least somewhat of a natural aptitude for. And so I was very grateful for my teachers for encouraging me in that kind of way. And so I was very involved in an organization called Mi Alpha Theta. It was a math honor study and math competition, right? At you know the city, state, and uh, national levels. And I like to joke now, I was not just the uh, just a nerd. I was the king of the nerds and you know went on to be national president of Mi Alpha Theta, that math honor society in high school. And I thought it was wonderful. And so it was a more, I guess, conventional way of trying to excel in school so that I could find my way into hopefully a good university that had a lot of resources to take on a student like me, you know, support my my interests. And, and so that was that was the very, I guess, at that age, a very pragmatic way of thinking of it. Wow. And so here you are at the top with your crown as the king of nerds and you're <laughs> going to these competitions, math competitions. 
And it sounds like your goal became to get into a university. I know that you got accepted into Harvard for your undergrad. What was it like at Harvard? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it was a real culture shock in some ways. I'd gone to these little public schools in Tallahassee, Florida, my whole life. And so, for example, the thought of calling professors who were world-renowned researchers in their fields by their first name was shocking to me, right? And Tallahassee is in the pen of Florida in many ways. It's it's a very Southern town. You didn't call an adult by their first name. It was Mr. Mrs. last name, maybe Mr. Mrs. first name, if you're on a very friendly basis or doctor something, so on and so forth. And so that was shocking to me. And then the fact that students were then encouraged to very aggressively debate their professors in certain cases, it was really mind-blowing to me. And, you know, there are other small things, you know, during special dinners that they would organize with faculty once a semester. And instead of having, you know, your regular dining hall food, it was a little bit nicer and you could invite professors to have dinner with you and have more meaningful conversations with them one-on-one. But I didn't know which utensils to use in what order. It's something that I had never been exposed to. And I think for a lot of students who were experiencing that, and we were, there maybe weren't as many of us as one would imagine. And so there's a level of, I don't know, a little bit of embarrassment. Ooh, I don't know how to conduct myself in this particular situation, or this seems unfamiliar to me. I didn't know what a consultant or an investment banker was. And so I was I remember being, being very confused when so many of my peers expressed an interest in banking freshman year. And I was thinking, gosh, bank telling must be a really coveted job. I never realized. And so it was, it was a culture shock in many ways, but I really felt very grateful to be around so many sharp, interesting, ambitious, and quirky young people with such varied interests. When you would meet someone new in the dining hall or in a discussion section and walking to a different building, making conversation, it was impossible to know. It was impossible to predict what interest they had that would light up their eyes and that they were so intensely focused on. You know, it could be research on climate change's effects in Antarctica, second language acquisition in children and adults, Italian literature, you know, the psychology of humor. And these are all actual interests that I remember as some of my peers talking about in conversation, you know, getting to know them. And for me, it really encouraged me to pursue my own interests, no matter how niche or unusual they may have seemed to an outsider. And so in many ways, the pragmatism that I felt at age 11, you know, seeing the real struggles of my parents and my family was somewhat counterbalanced once I got to Harvard, this university with so many sharp students pursuing varied interests, it counterbalanced that in some ways. And it made it seem okay to pursue something that was a little bit offbeat or unusual. Right. Interesting. And I know you mentioned a meeting at Harvard. A meeting at Harvard? Yeah. You said there was a meeting when I was asking what, what you know, some things that you wanted to talk about. You mentioned that there was a meeting, I think, that was different than other, you know, experience, maybe either getting into Harvard or at Harvard, there was some sort of meeting. Oh, I think I may have been referring to the meaning of what it meant to me. There's a meaning behind it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Just want to make sure we hit on that. And then, so after Harvard, what did you decide to do from there? Oh, much to my parents' consternation, I decided to, I was actually still a student. I, the freshman year, winter break, after my first semester, feeling somewhat inspired by all of my quirky peers, I thought I loved art and I loved music. And I remember listening to K-pop for the first time when I was 12 years old, when my sister came back from her first semester of college at that time with these CDs, these K-pop CDs. And really I'd been, it'd been a secret sort of obsession all through middle school and high school. And, and I really wanted to get closer to that music. And for me, it really represented a bigger world outside of Tallahassee at the time that there was a bigger world. I hadn't experienced it yet, but this was a reminder that it was out there. And there are these artists that were performing all manner of music, adult contemporary dance, electronic, R&B, so on and so forth, 
completely unselfconsciously and with such joy on stage. And so that freshman, you know, winter break, I put together some forms and demo tapes and I sent them to a number of agencies in South Korea and was called back and asked to uh, meet in person. And I found an internship in South Korea after my freshman year where I got the airfare and housing paid for so I could get there. And then I signed the record deal the summer before my senior year of college. It was a five-year, four-album contract and then flew out right after I graduated in 2008. Oh, so you did graduate, actually. You did. Interesting. Well, really quick on that, because I'm I'm hearing, so you created demo tapes. I mean, that's not easy to do, right? Like, especially then, I'm imagining, like, where did you go? Maybe the school had something where you could create these tapes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I think it's embarrassing, but I was I was not afraid to be scrappy because I had nothing to lose. So it was VHS tapes and I'm dating myself here. And so it was a uh, yeah, VHS tapes of singing into a camera with a, an instrumental track in the background and very lo-fi. It was not a, a mixed <laughs> track on a CD, but as as raw as you could get. But that's that's what I had the resources to make. Right. And so you shipped them over. Well, you probably had to research where to send these to these record labels. This is just like hilarious because I was in college in the same age, almost same type of thing. And I I wanted to model because I was inspired and wanting to do something totally different and getting out of Delaware. So in the same type of thing, I was sending pictures to top agencies in New York City and really trying to pound my way through and make it happen. But I want to hear how this went. So you created these tapes, you sent them to Korea. And then to I also did something similar where I got an internship in New York for a summer so that I could get my, you know, I could go up there and have something set up and make it look like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going up to New York City for actual work. And then first day there, went to a bunch of meetings. So you got this internship, you probably stated some student housing like I did. And did you get a call? And you must have gotten a call back because that's why you decided to go there. Or did you not get a call back yet? You just went. No, you're exactly right. You know, I sent in the tapes winter break. And then about a month later, I got an email and I knew the addresses because it was the early days of the internet, but the agencies had websites at that time and they had physical addresses, shipping addresses, addresses listed so that you could send in materials. And this these, this was fairly early in K-pop's journey, right, as an industry. And so nowadays, I'm sure if they did that, they would be flooded with so many demo tapes and CDs and whatnot that they wouldn't know what to do with it. But at that time, it was probably not as crowded. And so they emailed me saying, we'd love to see you in person. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to find a way to get there. And thankfully, very serendipitously, one of my professors, you know, was a freshman seminar. The name of the seminar was, I think it was called World Mental Health. And, you know, it was a really lively little freshman seminar. And the professor was so kind. And he said, you seem to have a real interest in this material. I have a contact of someone at a World Health Organization affiliated hospital in South Korea, working on a mental health initiative in conjunction with the WHO, looking for an intern. Would you be interested? I said, I sure would be. And I, it was a topic that I had genuine interest in as well. And so that's how I got the internship. And actually the housing was on site at the hospital. And so, and it was, I think I was the first person to stay. It was sort of newly built. And I remember they didn't have any running hot water yet because they hadn't connected it at the time. And I was thinking, whoa, this water is very cold <laughs> during my first night there. And then I would take the bus from where the hospital was. And it was in a somewhat remote location and taking the bus from there to Gangnam, an area of Seoul that's at the time was known to have high concentration of these, these entertainment related businesses, including the agencies. Amazing. And so you went to this meeting and how did it go? Oh my gosh. It was at a recording studio. I'd never been to a recording studio before. And so, um, you know, going into a booth and having a microphone, not being able to hear the people on the other side of the glass window unless they were pressing the button and wanted you to hear what they were saying. But of course you could see, see their mouths moving. Oh gosh, right. Do you have something to sing? And I said, okay, sure. And so I started singing, no, not acapella. Don't you have a CD with a 
instrumental? No, <laughs> I don't. I didn't. Now I was supposed to bring one. And so I just sang a cappella and, you know, I could see them talking. And then they said, come back into the, the main room. So I did. And I remember at the time, now I'm I'm much more fluent in Korean. At the time, I wasn't. And so they were saying something about me, but I didn't know what it meant. And I said, what does that mean? The word in Korean is umse. And I didn't know it. And so I said, what, what is that? And uh, one of the <laughs> executives looked at me said, you don't know what that means? It's, And then he translated the characters directly. Voice color. But he said, voice color. Don't you know, voice color, aren't you supposed to be from America? You know, English. And then I was, oh, you think that I have a unique voice. Okay, got it. And they seemed tickled. And of course, I wasn't really sure why. Discussed a lot amongst themselves, pulled me back. And of course, they were very concerned that my parents would be concerned if they took me out of Harvard, that they might be on my parents' hit list if I dropped out of college to pursue a music and a career in music. And so they said, we want you to graduate, but let's stay in touch. And so the summer after that, they wanted to see me again, but they gave me homework. They asked me to learn Japanese in addition to learning more Korean. And so I probably went back and enrolled in language classes at Harvard. And, and that's what eventually led to that signing of the deal the summer before my senior year. Amazing. That's exciting. And so it's funny that they were like, well, we don't want you dropping out of college because, you know, modeling agencies don't care. They're like, yeah, you should drop out. <laughs> and I was ready. I was ready to anyways. I was not a school person. You were much better at school than I was. So I, I was aching to get out. So I took that as like, hey, here's my go free card and I'm going to run with it. I'm out of I'm going to get out of Delaware and I'm going to go to New York City and start doing something really awesome and see what happens. But my parents were really upset <laughs> being the oldest and my mom didn't go to college, so she was really wanting me to finish. And I was like, sorry, I'm going to go to Singapore. I'm going to go here, go there. I'm going to be modeling in New York City. And she's like, oh, my God. But amazing. So you were able to graduate and you learned Japanese, too? Yes. You know, it was right at the beginning of when K-pop started becoming popular outside of the borders of South Korea. And Japan was one of the first markets, dramas and music. And there are a few dramas, Winter Sonata at the time. And then a really, really talented, wonderful artist that I'm a fan of named Boa crossed over into Japan and had a huge, huge career that spanned both countries, you know, Korea and Japan. And so at that time, agencies were asking talent to think about learning other languages. And so I did. And, you know, actually learning Korean and Japanese together was extremely helpful for me because while they are two separate languages that are not mutually intelligible, there were some shared features that really helped me and some shared vocabulary from classical Chinese. Kind of like if you know Latin, you, you can guess the meaning of a lot of English words that have roots in Latin. And so it was wonderful. And it gave me the opportunity to travel to places like Japan and learn more about the culture. And it was it was, a, it was an experience of seeing the bigger world that I had so craved for such a long time. And so I felt really lucky to be able to have. So what was it like, though? What was your like, what was it like? So you did you move to Korea and just became a K-pop star? Like, how did it work? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was, you know, I graduated in June of 2008 from college. And then within just a few weeks, I was in Seoul. And my life was, I guess it's important to give the context that most of the talent, the new talent was very young. These were teenagers, right? Most of them minors. And so at age 22, I was already on the higher end of the scale um, in terms of age. But because so much of the talent was young, the lives of the talent was very controlled, right? And a lot of it was for protection as well. But most talent lived in company-owned housing. Your days are sort of scheduled for you by the hour. Vocal, dance, acting instruction, sometimes language instruction. And then, of course, also, it's a very image-conscious industry. And so if you had skin troubles, as I did, I've always had very acne-prone skin. You're being sent to the dermatologist very frequently, usually at least on a weekly basis, sometimes more frequently if you had more issues, as I did. And so it was a, it was a fairly controlled life. I think probably at 15, 16 years old, that focused attention or that control feels like focused attention because it's almost parental. I think at two, maybe it felt a little bit less welcome, but, you know, I had to 
adjust. And then, and you know, there were challenges too. There was an assumption that because I had gone to Harvard that I must be from a very privileged background. And of course it was, it couldn't have been further from the truth, right? I grew up in very, very humble circumstances. But because that was the assumption, I think, and there may be an aspect of current culture in general that's related to this as well, but of sending a message to me that don't come here with attitude. You're here, you're in our world. You need to adjust. And so I remember my boss at the time, president of the agency, told me, you know, you need to forget everything that you've experienced up until now in your life, because I am now going to disassemble every facet of you and reassemble you into a more pleasing, more marketable, more sellable form. And, you know, that may sound cruel, and I don't think it was meant to be, even though it did feel sometimes really difficult to be on the receiving end of. And there were facets of it that were painful, but it did teach me some important lessons and skills that I didn't know at the time were going to be valuable down the road. The ability to smile in the face of what may feel like really harsh feedback, sometimes unfair feedback, or even insults, right? To be able to calmly smile through it, to resist the urge in that moment to defend yourself, to regulate your emotions enough to do that in challenging circumstances. And seeing how that can sometimes give you the time and space that you really need in those circumstances to approach it with calmness and parse through what can feel like callous feedback to collect maybe a valuable message that was hidden underneath, whether that was the intention of the speaker or not, you know, is irrelevant. If you can find something meaningful in it. And then also that that approach can sometimes, not always, but sometimes soften even the hardest of hearts by being able to approach a situation in that way. And I don't think I would have ever learned that skill set had I not been in that circumstance, in that industry at that age. Wow. Interesting. Wow. That's really fascinating. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. It's always incredible how you can learn things from situations where you just don't even know. You know, it's the same kind of thing for the modeling industry. Like you learn so many things and from the outside, it's like, well, what can you possibly learn? (laughs) Don't you just get your picture taken for a living? It's like, um, that's not exactly what it is. So it's really interesting to hear. So how many years were you in the kind of K-pop space? How long were you doing this? And what was the outcome? And why did you decide to stop doing it and do something else? Yeah, it was a five-year, four-album contract. And that sounds really long to some folks that I mentioned it to. At the time, it was actually a very, very good short contract. At the time, the average was 10 to 15 years for our first contract. And so I negotiated it down. Year two out of five, I sort of knew I love making the music. I love being so close to it. I loved songwriting, but I was very shy. And I thought, I may not have the temperament to get through this for a lifetime. I'm not sure if I I can endure it now, but I don't know if it's something that I could endure long-term because of some of those challenges that I mentioned. But I knew that I had to hit certain milestones, right? To, I guess, the pressure that I put on myself, right? To feel that I was not going to let my parents down who were very concerned about me, of course, that this time spent could be valuable and that I could glean something useful out of it. And so I had my four major releases. I may 
finish a chart twice. And so that was meaningful to me. But I'm sure this may be the case in other areas of entertainment and media as well. But in Korean pop music, if you're not number one, it doesn't really count, right? It's a very, very sort of, it's a hard industry. And so though I was able to chart twice, I wasn't sure if it was for me long-term. And so I decided not to renew my contract when my five years were up. And instead I decided to go back to school. And so I went to business school and I went to Wharton and I got my MBA. I was actually part of a joint degree program called the Lauder Program that specializes in international management. At the time you had to be fluent in one of nine languages. I believe now the number of languages has expanded, but at the time Korean was not one of those languages, but Japanese was. I did this joint degree program. I thought I'd go back to music and entertainment, but in on the business side afterward. And indeed did my internship at YouTube in Tokyo, working on a music project when I was in business school, but fate had other plans. And so I ended up working for a firm called Adam Factory, founded by Troy Carter. And of course, Lady Gaga was their big artist, but they had other artists as well, such as Megan Trainer and John Legend and John Mayer and Charlie Puth and more. But they they made a lot of early stage investments starting, I think, around 2009, 2010. I was lucky enough that they I was connected to them serendipitously, and they were looking to make a hire on the early investments team. And so that was my introduction into the startup space and the land of founders and starting businesses. And the funny thing is, is that in business school, during orientation, you take a battery of aptitude and affinity tests. And what I scored dead last in was entrepreneurship. Oh, really? That's funny. But it's also funny that you got your kind of start into the startup world in an accelerator, which I did as well. So I came to LA. I, I know of Adam Factory. I remember it because I was at Launchpad, which was a technology accelerator in LA in like 2013. And that was my first foray into seeing a bunch of amazing entrepreneurs and saying, wow, this is so cool. This is exactly what I want to do. These people are like doing things that I did 10 years ago or however many years ago to get into the modeling industry. Like, I love this stuff, creative problem solving. So you're saying that the test said that you weren't an entrepreneur, but obviously you're an entrepreneur now. So how did you go from Adam Factory to starting Matter of Fact? Oh gosh, I mean, I had I was encouraged by some really wonderful teammates and colleagues to start something of my own. And so at the time I thought, hmm, the only thing that I've ever thought about starting was something in skincare. And when I was in Korea doing music, being some of the dermatologist, I wasn't getting a lot of guidance on daily care. And so just by chance, just a few months after I landed in Korea in 2008, I met my future mentor and instructor in cosmetic formulation. And she helped me get my routine in order, but she also just piqued my interest in cosmetic formulation and recommended textbooks and journal articles and other documents she would send to me. And it really just became a personal hobby and passion. And it was my nighttime reading and I stayed in touch with her for all those years. And so by the time I started Matter of Fact in 2018, it had been 10 years since I, I met her. And I thought, well, one thing that I was really inspired by was founders who are willing to roll up their sleeves and do as much work on their own before they asked others to join them. And oftentimes these were, for example, coders, right? Who could get a lot of work done on a product before they raise a single dollar of funding and before they asked anyone to take a risk to join them. And I thought, well, that really is appealing to me. And, and so I thought maybe I, I can formulate, but it, what it really took was I went to some of the best labs in Southern California and met one of my other mentors, Susan Goldsberry, who's a legendary formulator within the cosmetics industry and went to her lab at the time and sort of enabled my way into there and brought a framework of the kinds of products I wanted to launch. And specifically about ways to stabilize vitamin C, which is, of course, so well-researched for skin. We know it has benefits for dark spots and wrinkles, so on and so forth, but it's really fragile. It's really finicky to work with because it breaks down so easily on shelf. And I brought a framework, probably four or five pages printed out, and she was so kind, gave me a proposal from her team, and I couldn't afford it because I had no 
the funding. I was bootstrapped. And I went back and I said, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to waste your time, but I really don't have the capital to engage you in this sort of way. And she said, Paul, my team probably doesn't want me to tell you this, but I think you don't need to work with us. You know, you have an interesting framework here. Why wouldn't you get on the bench yourself and just do it with your own two hands? And I said, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that because it, it's not been my formal training. It's just been a hobby. And she said, you can do whatever the heck you want. And by the way, I'm happy to mentor you. And that was incredibly generous and kind and encouraging. And that's what led me, you know, to do this. I didn't have the capital to engage a lab like the one she ran, but I had $300 to incorporate the company as a C-Corp so that I could start getting raw material samples for free from the, the suppliers. I had $1,500 to invest in basic equipment in the lab. And I had $500 a month to sh rent shared lab space in East LA. And that's how I got started. And that's where I formulated most of the products that we have on market right now in those early years. And that's where I wrote the patent documents. It was very, very lean, very scrappy, you know, team of one. And in the lab, you know, there's a lot of time spent heating things up, cooling things down. And during those times, creating financial models, you know, having pages upon pages upon pages of potential names for the brand, because I just had a name for the company, but I didn't know what the brand would be called. And and matter of fact, was one of those names. And it was, looking back on it, it was a lot of fun. Although, of course, it was sometimes scary at times too. Wow. I mean, I'm glad that you were encouraged to do anything that you want because I was waiting. I'm like, you know, I really think everybody needs to hear that at some point in their life. We often, I think, restrict ourselves just from our own, in our own thoughts or where we put these kind of guardrails around ourselves. And it's good to have that outward I guess, person or someone hopefully in our lives that can say, just why don't you just do it yourself? Why not just go for it? Take the leap. And so you formulated your own products. What was kind of your motivation to create? What were you looking to create that's different from what exists? At the very beginning, I didn't know whether we would launch a brand, but I did know that I liked making things. And you know, brought me back to some of those fondest memories of childhood where I spent a lot of time alone making things. But there are a few puzzles that seemed really interesting to me. So these ingredients in skincare that we know have a robust amount of research behind them, but are finicky to work with either because they're unstable or they're known to be quite irritating. Sometimes they're very hard to dissolve and therefore deliver to skin in a way that doesn't feel gritty or unpleasant. And I thought, let me start here. Let me start with making maybe some delivery systems that can deliver these tried and true ingredients to skin, but in different ways that maybe are less irritating, more pleasant, maybe more effective, more stable. And so those are the puzzles that I started with. And vitamin C was one of them, but now you know, we have a delivery system around retinol and around azelaic acid and niacinamide and so on and so forth. And so that's where I started, just a place of I feel self-conscious about doing this, but I'm being encouraged by someone who is a living legend in the formulation world. I have a wonderful instructor who's encouraging me as well. Let me just see what I can do. And, and that's where it started. And then it started snowballing into, well, could I then go beyond that? Could I combine these technologies into one formula to make something that's a supercharged, quote unquote, combination therapy kind of product addressing multiple skin concerns in one formula and attacking each skin concern through from multiple directions and having the dream of wanting to really robustly clinically test all of these formulas. And I'm so excited that we were able to do just that earlier this year. And so we call our collection of technologies Actisolve, actives and solvents, right? These novel solvent systems to dissolve and deliver these actives to skin. But one of our active self technologies are in vitamin C, showing the stability tested at multiple labs, both under accelerated and real-time conditions. But then more importantly, showing that I believe we're the first and only vitamin C technology to do this, demonstrate clinical efficacy, both at the beginning of the shelf life of the product and at the end of the shelf life of the product. And we were able to publish some of that research in high-impact peer-reviewed medical journal called the Journal of Investigative Dermatology earlier this year. And then they invited us to share that 
research at their conference in Tokyo as to posters. And so two members of my team, my wonderful advisor, uh, technical advisor, Dr. Tim McCraw, and our wonderful director of research and education, Dr. Julian Sass, and I were able to go in and present and share some of that research with the wider skincare community, research community. And I'm, I'm very grateful and proud of that. Amazing. Well, congratulations. I mean, so you and you founded this or started the company in 2018, right? So it's been a few years, obviously expanded the product selection quite a bit. How has it been? I mean, you went from taking a test that said low in entrepreneurship. Now you're obviously in the entrepreneur seat. You've made your own formulas, which is very, very rare for you know the founder to do that. And so what's it been like running a business over the past couple of years? Oh, I always tell my team that it, and they know this too, because they're in it with me. It's kind of like taking a sip of water from a fire hydrant. <laughs> it can be very overwhelming and very intense. And of course, we launched the brand D2C September of 2021 and fundraised for the first time just a year before that in 2020, all amidst a global pandemic. It was, there are real challenges with supply chain. Of course, there are struggles with building a team when everyone's remote, right? It's hard to, to find that shared feeling of camaraderie when you've never met folks in person. And then now, of course, people are used to being remote, but at the time, there was some real Zoom fatigue, right? Being on video conferencing all day and not being able to leave your dining room table or your bedroom, right? For, you know, days at a time. And so there, there are real challenges around that. And then of course, D2C, at the time, you know, people were being forced to shop online, but we saw a real reversing of that once we were allowed to shop in person again. And so there are always, always challenges, but we were very, very lucky in that we were able to partner with Sephora. And so we just launched into Sephora.com and in-store just a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And we're so excited and so grateful and so humbled for the opportunity. And we're in 270 doors nationwide. So we're able to share our products with a wider audience. But always there are such wonderful wins coinciding with buyers that you have to put out challenges that you have to overcome. And so you always get the light and the dark simultaneous. What's been one of the biggest challenges of building this business? Because I imagine there's got to be a few personal challenges maybe as well in this journey. Everyone has to grow professionally and personally as an entrepreneur. So what have been some of your biggest challenges? Oh, the biggest challenge by far is I think probably a lot of founders feel this is learning how to balance in your own way, well-intentioned feedback with your gut and what you feel is true to your company and your vision, right? Because especially once you take on investment, you have a lot of great, well-intentioned, very smart people giving you a lot of feedback, right? Sometimes solicited, sometimes not. And it's hard to know sometimes what to do when you hear as an answer to a particular question or challenge, 10 different answers that all are in varying degrees in conflict with each other. <laughs> and so it was difficult. And for me, particularly, every lesson has its, I guess, counter lesson, if you will. And so in Korea doing music, if I learn really the value of being able to emotionally regulate, self-regulate for long enough to see if there was a nugget of something valuable, even in the most callous or harsh of feedback, that the flip side of that is, I think early on, I didn't know maybe how wanted or in some cases, how valuable my opinion was. Yeah, it's the most valuable. Yeah. And so there are times when I re remained quiet and, and it didn't end up serving anyone. And my team quickly let me know it's, we want to know what your perspective is. We find it extremely helpful to directionally know where we should be going to know what you think the direction should be. Whereas of course I had been deathly afraid of because I had heard so many times in which founders would hire great talent, but then wouldn't let them execute because they were maybe managing a little bit too closely. That's a common refrain, right? That you hear, I feel like in the startup space, make sure you don't get in the way of the talent people you hire. But I think maybe I had sort of overcorrected or over overshot them. <laughs> You let them run wild. Well, I think I created a vacuum, right? Where they 
maybe didn't know how far they, how should I say this? Directionally speaking, if you set blinders on, right? These are off the table. These are your set of options. Within this set of options, what do we think is best? Is much, I think, sometimes more valuable feedback to a team than to say, come to me with the ideas. I want to make sure we don't leave anything unturned. And that can sometimes, I think, encourage analysis paralysis. And of course, it's going to be different with every team and every founder is different as well. But for me, I think that's something that I learned early on, but maybe not as early as people would have wanted me to, that they want my feedback. So maybe part of this, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, that part of this journey for you has been kind of building your own voice. Oh, certainly. When I left K-pop, there was a sense of new opportunities and freedom. There's also a sense of mourning because I didn't know whether I would ever get the opportunity to make a living doing anything creative ever again, right? That was a reality that I had to grapple with at the time. And in this situation, it was, I had been sort of, I don't know, over many years, I guess, trained to quiet my voice, to be able to take in that feedback from other people. And this was a little bit of the opposite. Isn't it funny, though, the industry, though, like the entertainment industry is just kind of the same as the fashion industry in so many ways where it's like, and I don't I don't know the true dynamics, you know, of your situation, but in the modeling world, it's it's an agency and they kind of you're paying them, right? Like you're paying them out of what you get paid, but yet they are they act like your boss, but really they're working for you. (laughs) But because you're young and you don't know any better and they make you feel completely replaceable or all of these things they control the situation and they make it about working for them and it's very interesting dynamic cuz it takes your voice away at such a really young age i know even for myself i could stand in front of a room of people no problem but if i had to speak up or if i had to i had to work to kind of get that back that confidence back to even like public speaking for sure you know but it's funny to think about your voice because you were actually singing. <laughs> so from the outside world, I'm sure it looked like you have a really strong voice, right? And here you can go into a business meeting or go and build your business and you should have no problem projecting your voice, right? But it's a very different thing when you're in that environment. Oh, right, right. And it's very similar in Korean music as well. And when you're delivered a song or a script and you're performing it, is very different than delivering something that in many ways is yeah that you create and it it, it does make you feel more vulnerable because it's it's not a performance per se it's sharing part of you and that can be that can be scary i mean i do think that there were some good transferable skills you know that i'm sure you relate to this the quiet toughness that you develop as talent and as as you know, I was told many times, you know, you're not a person per se, you're a product. <laughs> totally. Yep. You're you're an object that we sell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And to endure that does take, I think, a tremendous amount of quiet strength and fortitude. Because, you know, I'm not sure if as a species we're quite designed to be able to endure that kind of mindset for long periods of time. It can be hard it can be it can feel dehumanizing sometimes and totally is dehumanizing i was definitely feeling dehumanized this many times i mean i've had like stylists smoking cigarettes in my face as they're like sewing something near my neck or something and it's literally going in my eyes and there's just no care in the world for me like being a human or having i mean it's just like the the list goes on oh i remember during a rehearsal, my manager got really angry at me. I was a little bit hoarse. And so I was trying to preserve my voice for the actual performance. But I think he was frustrated that he felt that I was not giving the rehearsal the serious focus. But it, it was a misunderstanding. But <laughs> he threw an ashtray at me and I dodged it and kept on singing because that's what you have to do. And when you're on the road and you know performing at different events and there's a costume change or something, you know, you get really used to not feeling self-conscious about stripping and putting on clothes in front of strangers, right? 
Exactly. Being in your underwear in the back of a fashion show. It's like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Isn't that normal. Doesn't everyone just get changed in front of everyone all the time? <laughs> yeah. And I remember it was, there was a, I had an interview with, I think it was Days and Confused Korea at the time. And, and we had brought in outfits and they said, we don't want the one you're wearing. We want this one. And so I started undressing and to put this on and the editor stopped and said, whoa, we have a changing room for that. You're like, oh my God, you do? What a luxury experience. There's actually a changing room. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's valuable in some ways because of the toughness it develops, but there is a the opposite side of that coin where you do then have to learn to redevelop your ability to speak up and develop the courage to not just share something that's a performance that's predetermined, but be vulnerable and brave enough to share something that's part of you, whether it's an idea or your story or, yeah. I'm sure we could do like a whole podcast on like that. And then like also probably the stereotypes that follow you after you leave the industry. Those are fun. You know, I'm so much more than what I did then, you know, that was a really long time ago, guys. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, so kind of going back to the brand, which is beautiful and such a cool name, matter of fact, and the branding and all the information you have of it being clinically proven, It's really cool what you've built. And I know you mentioned one of the tough challenges was kind of all the conflicting advice that you get from advisors and investors. And I think that's something very common that entrepreneurs deal with. You know, you take on these really smart people to be on your cap table and then they all want to provide value. So they all have opinions. And then you're like really confused after talking to too many of them about what to do. So you have to have a really strong vision for where you want to take the brand and filter too for what feels right and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It's And it's something that I've had to practice and get better at, right? And sometimes you don't know until you test a few different things. And then look at the data to understand what's working and what's not. When we had our first conversations with Sephora in 2022, there were lots of opinions on how best to prepare for that. And then of course, there are lots of different opinions on whether it was a more of an opportunity or more of a danger. And, you know, of course, in my heart of hearts, I knew that Sephora was the partner for us. And it's what I had always dreamed of. It's what I had always hoped for. And so I had to push forward and decide relatively quickly where I was going to put my focus and attention because great relationships, whether they're personal relationships, professional relationships, or partnerships between organizations, they require a lot of genuine care to foster, right? You can't be waffling for too long before the other party sort of realizes, wait a second, well, if you're waffling, maybe I shouldn't be so invested, right? and love, friendship, work. I think it applies to all of those categories. And so I had to make a decision and focus and put my blinders on and say, what can we do to be the best partner that we can? And how can we show that as such a small, young, early brand that we may be small, but we're mighty and we have a lot of heart and we're putting a lot of energy into creating beautiful products, top class research, right? That we're sharing with everyone, right? You don't have to take our word for it. It's published in a peer reviewed journal, right? And so it was uh, probably one of the earliest moments where I had to really trust my gut and then start assembling really wonderful people on the team that could share that vision with me. Yeah. And then what about fundraising? How did that go? I know, I'm sure it was your first time fundraising. What has it been like? How much have you raised so far? And what has the experience been like? Where's some of the lessons learned? Fundraising is always tough, right? And at the beginning, especially, I did my first round in 2020, shortly after the pandemic shut everything down. And so my lab, I had to move because it shut down into my little one bedroom apartment. My wife wasn't thrilled when I had to turn the dining room table into bench space. It looked like a lab that wasn't making skincare. <laughs> if someone walked in, they may have different ideas of what we're making in that apartment. But it was tough because for beauty, investors are accustomed to investing in post-launch brands, right? It's the products being good as a given, but product differentiation may not be at the top of the list of what they're looking for. 
building a community of enthusiastic customers, having some sort of a glow around the brand post-market. This is what often gets them excited. And so to fundraise as a team of one at that time that had, at the time, I think had six patent documents, you know, in process and some really promising clinical and preclinical data. But it was kind of like, are you an R&D focused company making technologies? Are you a beauty brand? You know, and also how the heck did you do this? <laughs> right. Who are you again? And those stereotypes that follow you. Uh-huh. I was just going to say, like, aren't you a singer? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you look about 18 years old. You're like, my products work. See, I test them out myself. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> if only that argument had been more persuasive. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it was tough. I, but I was very lucky in that the investors that I eventually was able to connect with, one of them was an investor in life sciences meets consumer companies. And so they had sort of the resources. I spoke with two PhDs, you know, one in physics who had developed delivery systems for tretinoin actually that I had read about when I was actually doing music in Korea. So it was a little bit of a wow moment to meet her in this call. And then another PhD who had been the number two of a very, very R&D department of a very, very large chemicals company that services some of the largest beauty brands in the world. And so these were real domain experts asking very, very tough, specific questions. And so it worked in our favor because they were able to sort of help with the diligence enough that, you know, our first investor, Horizons Ventures, felt enthusiastic and comfortable with the IP, with the IP strategy. They knew that the the technologies were real. And so I felt very lucky to to have them on board. And then soon after, uh, First Run Capital and Cowboy Ventures jumped on as well. So I've been grateful to all of them for the support that early on, way before we launched any products into the market, just based on the technologies, my vision, and that early clinical research that we had done. And so that was a major hurdle that you know we we're able to overcome through just, I think, luck and tenacity and finding the right fit with the right investors. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you have some amazing investors on your cap table. That's, you know, huge congrats to you. What is next for the brand and what's some final advice you have for entrepreneurs tuning in? Oh, well, we just launched into Sephora on .com and in brick and mortar just in the last month. And so we're so excited. We're going to be continuing to launch new products that we're excited about that have some interesting technologies in them, some interesting formulas. We're so excited to meet more and more uh, customers at Sephora and, you know, grow our business and hopefully make more happy users of the products. And of course, on the R&D side, continuing to do pretty deep, robust clinical testing on our products. And then of course, continue to share that research with the wider academic research community by continuing to publish our research in those peer-reviewed high-impact journals so that everyone can benefit from our research, not just us, and that we contribute to the literature that we're so, we've been so grateful for because we've, we benefit from the published literature. And so to be able to contribute to it as a real privilege. That's, you know, very, very humbling for us. And then for advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, I think probably my number one piece of advice would be to stay focused. Life is full of distractions, so many enticing, attractive distractions. So it's important to stay focused on your goal, if and especially if that goal is starting a business, because it's very difficult. And especially in the early days, you're making a lot of sacrifices that if you start to feel resentful or that you're missing out on other opportunities as a result of working on your business, it's going to distract you from doing good work, right? And so other job opportunities that pop up that look more stable or look more predictable, that can be a very enticing distraction, especially in the early days, a startup. And you can never know because you only have one life to live, whether taking another path would have led to more happiness. But what I can say is, it's very hard to launch and grow a successful business without staying focused on your goal and resisting the temptation of being, of looking too much and for too long at these other opportunities. Not to say that if you come to a fork in the road and you have to 
do that to take care of yourself, of course. But before you reach that point, if you want to see your business succeed, try to stay focused on it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us on the show today and sharing your awesome story. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you so much. I had such a great time speaking with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.